All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. We got a great one for you here tonight. We're going to close out Black History Month with two young rising chiefs, and they are going to talk about their journeys, where they've been, what's going on with them now, and what they hope to accomplish and where they hope to be. So without further ado, I'm going to bring on uh, Difficult Conversations veteran, Chief Jason Armstrong of Ferguson, Missouri. He was a uh, guest on season two, episode eight. How you doing, Chief? I'm doing good, sir. How you doing, Dean? I'm doing well. Thanks for coming back. We, we appreciate you coming back to, to visit us and spread more of your knowledge. Thank you for having me. All right. We're excited. And then to join us tonight, we have a difficult conversation newcomer, Chief Bisa French. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about your journeys and where, where you've been and how you got it started in this line of work. So I'm going to start with you, Bisa, since you're new. Tell us a little bit about wh where, what your journey has been like. So I started in law enforcement pretty early. I started at the age of 22. Um, and my journey, I had never had any kind of negative experiences with law enforcement personally. Um, I had a uh, reason why I wanted to start my career early. I was a young teenage mother and I wanted to do something to support my son and I. And I decided that it was now or never in, in terms of getting into law enforcement. So I decided to apply and got into this field because I really wanted to make a difference in my community. Outstanding. So you got on the job. Was it everything you thought it was going to be? Because, because again, we always give those typical job interview answers. I just want to make a difference and make a change. Was it as easy as you thought it was going to be? Absolutely not. So it was completely different once I got on the job. Um, I had a lot of challenges like being a woman of color um, on this job, in this profession. It was difficult. And what I didn't realize was that the difficulties would come internally as opposed to externally. I could go out there and do the job and arrest people and do whatever I needed to do on the streets, but it was the politics, it was the culture, it was those uh, challenges that I had uh, a hard time dealing with. We're gonna come back to that, all right? We're gonna definitely circle back. Jason, how about you? Tell us a little bit about how you ended up in this line of work and why you stayed. So for me, um, you know, I didn't have uh, any real aspirations of joining law enforcement um, until, you know, I got a little bit older and I got into college. And so coming out of, of college, um, I found out about a program. I learned of a program um, through the Department of Justice called the Police Corps. And so what this program was is if you signed up to be a police officer for four years, then they gave you back up to thirty thousand dollars that you spent on college. So I'm one of the few people that got into the profession for the money. I, I got in to get that scholarship money. Um, and so when I got into it and, and you know, just really, really got, you know, my feet wet and, and got my career started. You know, I just I really enjoyed, you know, what I was doing. And and I saw that for, for me, you know, I, I saw what I brought to the table. You know, I was in an organization where the city that I was in in Forest Park, you know, was predominantly minority, but the police department was predominantly white. We were about 70, 80% white uh, officers. 
And so, you know, man, I saw the uniqueness that I brought, you know, to the table and, and how, you know, I, I could use that and, and how I could do some different things um, and help, you know, build up some relationships and, and make some connections, you know, that others that I work with, you know, couldn't do. And so just seeing, you know, the, the impact that I could have is really what fueled me, you know, to want to wanna do more and more. And in my organization, um, you know, I, I remember very vividly, you know, when I started there, some of the veteran black officers, you know, they often talked about how, you know, there was no representation and supervision. You know, sergeant was the highest position, you know, a black person had held in that agency when I first started there. And so that really gave me the fuel to become the first. Um, and so, you know, once I really got on that path, you know, just just really put a, a laser focus into trying to achieve those things and trying to get in some of those rooms and some of those spaces that we hadn't been into before. Um, and I was able to do it, um, you know, with a lot of blessings and, and a lot of hard work um, and ultimately, you know, led to me getting the, the position up here in Ferguson. Outstanding. Uh, Bisa, tell us about your, your journey. Was it tough to ascend? Were, you, were there many role models that looked like you in your department? Absolutely not. Um, there was a female sergeant that was African-American um, when I started. Well, not actually when I started, she became a sergeant, but then she left uh, shortly after. So I was just trying to learn the job. I was just happy to be a police officer, um, but I'm a people watcher. And so I started watching you know, the, the people around me, um, especially my supervisors. And I realized, hey, I could do a job that they're doing, and I actually could do it a little bit better. I, I you know, look at the faults and see where I want to be um, as a supervisor. And so I decided, um, I think it was like about seven years in to, to try for sergeant, which I did. And then after that, I got promoted pretty quickly through the ranks. Um, and it was just opportunity. Opportunity arose, and I said, look, I might as well go for it. Why not, you know, why not me? So um, I became a lieutenant five years after I was a sergeant, and then um, three years after that, became a captain. Three years after that, assistant chief. And three years after that, chief. So um, went pretty quickly through the ranks. I was the youngest ever to be at many of those ranks um, and the first woman to be the chief of police in this department. Wow. Well, congratulations on that. Um, I, I know it's difficult. Uh, obviously, I am not the rank that you, that you are. I'm, I'm a sergeant, but I am only the second black officer in the history of my department to rise above the le level of patrolman. So um, here we are, different parts of the country, different experiences, and we're still kind of having the same uh, kind of the same experiences as far as just a, a lack of seeing people that, that look like us in positions of, uh, of leadership. So on that note, recruitment. How is your recruitment going? So I'm going to go back to Jason. So Jason, talk a little bit about the recruitment in your department, what that what that's like. And, you know, are, are people dying to get this job or what? What's going on in Ferguson? Man, recruiting is, is a struggle. Um, it's a struggle nationally. We know it's one of the challenges of the profession right now. Um, and it's definitely something that we're feeling here uh, in Ferguson. And so, you know, for us, the biggest challenge is trying to find um, experienced officers, you know, to, to come work here. You know, I get a, I would get a pretty decent amount of, of young can, uh, candidates that apply that we would have to send to the academy. Um, but the academy here um, in Missouri is six months long. And so, you know, you know, it takes them a, a few months to go through the hiring process. Then it depends when the academy class is starting. So, you know, we're looking at sometimes maybe a year before that person could come here and start working. 
And so, you know, we it's, it's most beneficial if we're able to find experienced officers. But that's where the, the challenge is, because everybody is hurting for people and everybody is looking for those quality experienced officers. And so now you really look at, OK, what can you know this agency offer over another agency? And that's that's where we're struggling because we're a smaller department, we're a smaller city. So we don't have all of the, you know, the fancy units and, and all the, the sexy stuff that, you know, some people are looking to get into. You know, we don't have a lot of those things. Um, and, you know, a lot of places, you know, they can offer more money. You know, they don't it doesn't come with the spotlight that Ferguson comes with and, you know, the oversight. You know, we have a consent decree here. So there's a lot of stuff that we have going on that a lot of places, you know, don't have to worry about it, don't have to deal with. And so on that end, you know, it makes recruiting hard. Um, but it's one of the things that, you know, definitely at the forefront of, of you know, what what we're looking to do and what we're focusing on um, to try to get, you know, some quality people in here. And so, you know, we're looking for a really good balance between experience and and young talent that we can get in here and just kind of groom, you know, for, for how we want them to be. All right, we're back. We're having some internet difficulties, it seems like. So I'm going to go back to Chief um, uh, Chief Bisa French. She was just talking about what it's been like trying to recruit for her department. So we'll go ahead and we'll bring Bisa back on. Hello again, Bisa. Sorry about that. So oh, you're saying about what the recruitment process has been like in Richmond. Yeah, recruiting has been difficult, um, not just for my city, but across the nation as I talk to other chiefs. Um, especially recruiting people of color, uh, you know, with the nationwide push for reform and the negative incidents of um, interactions with law enforcement, people of color don't want to become police officers. They don't want, want to be part of this culture, you know, this system. And I get that. But to me, the only way to change something is being involved in it. So um, I'm urging people to get involved in, in, you know, trying to recruit, especially people of color. I want my Department to be representative of the community. And so we're looking at um, doing some different recruiting efforts here, really looking at, you know, it, the, the antiquated way that we've done hiring for the last, you know, 30 plus years and looking at what we can be doing differently to attract the, the, the people that we want to attract. So um, there's, there's a lot going on with recruiting. Um, but in, in order to attract the right people, you have to have a culture that makes them feel safe and want and um, and wanted within. So we're we're also focusing on working on those cultural issues internally that would be more accepting of you know people from different backgrounds. So what are some of the things? I'm going to get Chief Armstrong back in here. So what are some of the different things that you're doing to make it a more inclusive environment? that um, may have not been done before and might not be uh, the norm in police work? So really looking at, you know, the trainers that we have, making sure that they're um, really in tune with how we want them to train officers and what we're looking for. Because, you know, we could bring in uh, officers of all different colors, you know, to our departments. But if we have a culture here that's not accepting and that, you know, is, is only going to teach them that old way of doing policing, which is antiquated, then we're not doing anything. I mean, we need to be able to bring in a diverse group of people and then really focus on how we're doing policing today in the 21st century. So um, teaching the people that we have here, I'm working on a cultural competency training for our um, staff that we already have, as well as um, the, the people that we bring in, really integrating them into our community by teaching them about 
the history of our community here. We have a strong history in Richmond and there's a strong history between the community and law enforcement that hasn't always been great. And so we need to acknowledge, you know, the harms that we've caused in the community. And if the people here don't understand and don't know about those harms, they don't understand why the, the community treats us in a certain way. So really teaching them about, you know, the, the history of our relationship with the community and acknowledging those harms and then really working, partnering with our communities to figure out how we can do better moving forward. So those are some of the things that we're working on internally. Well, well lucky for you, I happen to know a guy who knows a thing about repairing community relations. Jason, <laughs> you want to speak to this a little bit? Absolutely. Um, and so, Dean, one of the things that we talked about uh, when I was on before um, is, you know, how much the community is involved in what we have going on here in, in Ferguson. Um, and so, you know, I, with our take our hiring, for instance, you know, any officer that we're looking to hire has to sit through a community panel. Um, that is a part of, of our hiring process. And the same thing goes for, you know, if we're having promotions uh, in, in the department. And so, you know, so early on, you know, our, the people that are looking to come here, they see how big a role the community plays in, in what goes on here, you know, with the Ferguson Police Department. And that's critical for us because, you know, what we're trying to do and, and what we're trying to, to build here is a community effort. Uh, and so, you know, Bisa and I both, both serve on the ICP's Community Policing Committee. Um, and so, you know, we're in meetings where we're talking about this kind of stuff all the time. And, and the big message that goes along with it is, you know, we have to stop talking about this as if it's two separate entities, as if the community is one entity and the police department is another entity. We're all part of this community and, and we all, you know, have a stake in what goes on in the community. And so I mean, we have to find ways to, you know, to, to build, you know, those partnerships and build those relationships where, you know, man, people feel as though that they can that we can depend on each other. That, you know, community members can depend on the police department when they need us and vice versa, man. When we need the community, you know, for some help and some resources, you know, we can depend on them on them also. And so when when you look at, you know, recruiting, one of the things that we try to do is, you know, man, we, we try to, you know, find people that are from the area um, or that have connections to the area because they can they can speak to that community element. You know, when we talk about community policing and, and what it's like to build up those relationships and those partnerships, um, you know, here for us here in, in Ferguson, you know, we 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 send officers to the academy. We have the ability to do that, where some agencies don't do that. They only look to hire people that are already certified. Um, and, you know, so in, in our recruiting you know efforts and, and looking to to take a chance on somebody and send them to the academy, you know, one of the things that that we really look for is people that grew up in this area that graduated from the high schools you know in this area that have some some ownership you know in in the area is one of the key things that i, I look for and and try to you know take advantage of with, with recruiting efforts all right well fair enough the the chat was lighting up big time before we had our little snafu but a few people have jumped back in and i have a question for both of you so Mark wants to know, does either chief think that reserve programs are good sources for recruiting? And do you currently have reserve offices? So what say you, Bisa? Do you, do you like uh, reserve programs and do you have it? So we have a reserve program that is life support. <laughs> so um, I think we what, only what have- that How's it on life support? 
We only have two reserve officers and we're actually not looking to bring on more reserve officers. Unfortunately, um, you know, so reserve officers are certified law enforcement officers. However, they're, um, they don't get paid. They're, it's a voluntary thing. So we require all um, reserve officers to do a certain number of um, volunteer hours per month. The challenge is with all the training that people have, uh, officers have to go through now, it's hard to get them through all that training. And if they don't get all through all that training, of course, they're going to be the ones that get into something on the streets and then they're going to look at their training history and find flaws in it. And it's just with everything that we require officers to do, it's just too difficult right now to um, to bring on additional reserves and only have them do a certain amount of hours. It's just not beneficial for us right now. And it's, it's too risk. It's too much of a risk, I think, to bring on additional reserve officers. And that's just our program. We I know that there's other really um, great programs out there that work differently. Um, I just don't have the staffing and the time and the energy really to, to enhance our, our reserve program right now. That's a real answer. And I, I, I love real. Jason, how about you? Do you have it? Or would it work in Ferguson? No, we, we don't have it right now. And, and our challenge with doing it is very similar to, to what Visa uh, highlighted. So for me, it's my consent decree and everything that goes into the consent decree. And so if, if they are under my command, so if they are a Ferguson officer, whether reserve or full-time officer, then, you know, all the merits of the consent decree and, and all of those policies and stuff that we have, they, they would, they would have to, you know, they would have to abide by them. And that is a very labor intensive process um, and, and issue to, to work through. And so that's, you know, that's the biggest challenge for us with implementing a, a reserve program. And I think I think the city had one years ago. Um, but with our consent decree and, and everything that's mandated in that, it makes it extremely difficult to have people that, you know, you just have, you know, for short periods of time because we have so much that that we have to pour into them and that we have to get them to understand and be able to follow um, that it, it makes it it makes it difficult. All right. So there was, a, there was recently, I mean, well, within the last year or two, there was a reserve officer that got into a significant use of force or even a deadly force incident that highlighted some of the challenges of reserve officers. It happened somewhere probably out your guys's way, not well, in California. I, I, um, I, it didn't happen up here. I can tell you. No, that. no, no. I mean, on the East Coast. <laughs> you know, on the West Coast so, um, but it really highlighted the challenges of, of reserve programs. All yeah. right. Well, well, let me ask you this. Um, as far as that goes, first of all, Jason, can you talk a little bit about consent decree? I know you touched upon it the last time you were on, but there's some new people in the audience here that might not know exactly what that is. So really quick, could you just talk about what that is and, and how that changes the way you operate? Absolutely. So um, after the Michael Brown incident and the unrest that ensued here in Ferguson, uh, the Department of Justice came into Ferguson and did an investigation. Um, into the police department and the municipal court and the city as a whole. Um, and so as a result of that, um, the city entered into a consent decree uh, agreement with the Department of Justice. So it's it's almost like it's kind of compared to like a lawsuit. And, and so, you know, there's a lawsuit on the table and the two parties agree uh, to an agreement instead of us, instead of the city having to play things out in court and go with you know whatever the findings of the, the lawsuit may be and so as a result 
the city entered into this agreement, um, like I said, which is a federal agreement. So we have a federal judge uh, that oversees our consent decree. And so our consent decree is 465 paragraphs. Okay. And so that's 465 standards that we have to meet. That's 465 tasks that we have to get done. Um, that's on uh, top of accreditation too, right? Exactly. Because one of the 465 paragraphs is a paragraph that says that we must get accredited also. And so, so while we're working on those 465 paragraphs, at the same time, we're working on our CALEA accreditation also. And, and so th that's why I said, you know, for us, we just have so many moving parts and, 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 and the stakes are so high for us at all times. You know, when you talk about the reserve program, you know, that's that's what makes it challenging for us because, you know, we have so many things going on. And and, you know, at any time, you know, we're audited by the Department of Justice or our monitor. We have a federal monitor that kind of oversees our consent decree process. Um, and so, you know, we, we don't have a lot of room or margin for, for error. Um, and so, you know, we, we have to be, you know, just very, very careful in, in how, you know, we do things and how we document things to make sure that we're doing things the right way and we're following along with these new policies. But in going through the consent decree process, it's just rolling out a lot of different policies and and just really looking at, you know, when people talk about reform, I mean, that that's essentially what it is. It's reform. And so, you know, after the George Floyd incident, and a lot of the, the national narrative that you heard of people, you know, wanting to see police reform. And so they wanted a duty to intervene policy. They wanted, you know, chokeholds restricted and all of that stuff. All right. I didn't have the bad an eye because I had all of those policies already. And they were largely in part because of the reform that Ferguson has been going through, you know, over the last four or five years uh, to where, you know, where we're kind of ahead of the curve on a lot of this stuff. Um, because it was forced on us. And, you know, would those things have been done if we didn't have these mandates in place? I can't say. But with having them in place, you know, we we had already been working towards a lot of that stuff. And so that's that's you know, we, we had a, a lot of it already. All, all wonderful points. Beast, I'm going to bounce over to you. Um, Larry Lorenzo, known to me as Larry, he wants he says we can certainly do a better job of recruitment. We do not take advantage of our inner city community colleges that have CJ programs already with actively involved students and potentially future officers. So do you have any colleges nearby your PD or your jurisdiction? And, and have you tapped in or have you thought about tapping into the CJ programs? Yeah, we actually have. We, we go to talk to the CJ classes all the time. We have several uh, community colleges around us. And then we have UC that's close to us too. And we talk to a lot of their sports programs, trying to recruit people from there. Um, but another thing that we were just getting ready to do right before COVID hit with the community colleges is to have a program where it actually teaches you how to get through the testing process. So as you know, the testing process in and of itself for to get hired as a law enforcement officer can be very challenging, especially for somebody that's not familiar with the system, somebody that doesn't have, you know, somebody in their family that's already been through the system. And we found that a lot of people that we want to hire from our communities can't get through the testing process. So um, actually one of my uh, previous professors from a, a local junior college created this platform that teaches people. So um, basically when they say that they're interested in the field, you know, they can click an interest button and then it connects them with one of my recruiters and we keep in contact with the person throughout the 
before they even submit an application saying, hey, we're going to have testing, submit your application. So it, it stays with them. We stay with them basically every step of the way. So if they make it through the, you know, we pick up their application and then we talk about the testing and we talk about what the testing is going to consist of and we prepare them um, by doing mock interviews. And this is all online virtually, but uh, do online interviews with them. We teach them what they need to know about the physical training program so they can get physically fit to be able to, to pass the physical training. And then um, even if we hire them, we teach them what they need to prepare for for the academy. So we're staying with them each step of the way so that we can answer questions and that we can get the people that we want to get hired through the actual process. All right. So essentially you have a mentoring program and that's and that's been, and that's been working for you externally. So, it, you know, we have a mentoring program internally for the people we have already hired, but we have this semi-mentoring program for people that are interested in becoming police officers and really, you know, getting them through. All right. So we're going to stay on that same theme here for, uh, I'm going to go back to Jason. So keeping that last question in mind about the community colleges, also, are you doing anything progressive with the community outreach? And if so, what are they and, and are they working? Are they working? Um, somewhat, somewhat. One thing that I haven't been able to tap into yet, but it, it's on my radar. I don't know if you all saw it, um, but uh, a few months ago here in Missouri, there's an HBCU called Lincoln University, and they started their own police academy. And it's the first police academy based out of an HBCU in the country. Um, and and you know, I recently talked to uh, uh, HBCU that's up here in the St. Louis area uh, to put me in contact with them down there, you know, so I can, you know, be involved in a program that they have going. Um, you know, I want to teach down there and I also want to recruit from down there also. Um, and and so, you know, it's, it's one of the things that we have to leverage, you know, as a police chief, man, you don't have a lot of free time. And so we, we have to find ways to, to leverage, you know, where, where we're getting multiple things accomplished, you know, at the same time. Mm -hmm. So let's take, you know, this platform right here. All right. In my closing remarks, I'm, I always close any public speaking I do with talking about the positions that I have open. Um, and, and I put my information out there and I encourage people, you know, to get in contact with me, you know, if they're interested in a profession or if they're looking, you know, if they're in the St. Louis area, they're looking here or if somebody's maybe looking to, to relocate. And, you know, so we, we have to be creative and, and do different things like that. You know, so I talk on a lot of panels and I participate, you know, especially in this virtual world that we're living in right now is, you know, I can get on a panel all, all over the country. And, you know, man, I have to take advantage of, of that time, you know, to really talk about what we're trying to do here to see if that connects with somebody that may be interested in, in what we have going on and want to come, you know, be be a part of the team. Um, but it, it's like like we said, man, it's it's tough. Um, you know, as far as connecting with with local, you know, uh, higher education institutions, that was one of the things one of the first things I did when I got here. You know, I'm an HBCU graduate. Um, and so when I came to St. Louis, you know, the first thing I was looking to see are then HBCUs. You know, um, and so I have Harris Stowe uh, State University here in St. Louis. Um, and so I went down and got with them immediately. And so I've had some interns, you know, from them that came in and interned with us. And, and so we're trying to keep that momentum going. We're bringing in some interns and getting, giving them some exposure, you know, to the profession and just some of the different avenues that you can go into. 
um, because th that's that's the thing. And, and you know, I don't know if, if Visa's experience was this, but but and before you get into the profession, like you, you really don't have a real clue as to di the different avenues that you can branch out and go into in the profession. Now, one of the things that probably did us, you know, some uh, some damage to the profession was CSI. So now because now everybody wants to be a forensic scientist and, and they think that what they saw, you know, on on those shows is exactly what happens. And I know Beza can attest to this, you know, man, if I send in a fingerprint to the lab, I might get those results in six months if I'm lucky. If they don't come back in, in 23 minutes uh, and, and clear my case. Um, and so it, it's being able to connect with people, especially, you know, the young the young people that are interested in the profession and just show them, you know, the different avenues and what the realities are, um, because it, it is much different than what we see, um, you know, on the shows and the entertainment and stuff. Um, you know, it's good to get the interest there. But, you know, on top of the interest, we really have to feed, you know, what the realities are in the profession. So people understand and and just have, you know, man, some good information on, on all the different things that they could do in the profession. So he so Beast, I'm going to direct a question. So Jason did ask you, I uh, did ask, like, he didn't know what your experience was um, as far as. I'm going to paraphrase and say explaining to the public what the realities of the job are, because that's something I know that I probably see just as much, maybe even more so than you as a chief, because I'm closer to the street. And sometimes I have to explain things to like, like you said uh, there, Jason, where you send things to the lab, these crimes are not solved in 60 minutes, including commercial breaks. You know, that's, that's not the way it's not reality. Like these shows, you know, though entertaining and I enjoy them myself sometimes, they've kind of set a false expectation as to what the job's all about. Uh, tantamount to, hey, why couldn't you just shoot the gun or shoot the knife out of someone's hands while they were running at you? You know, why did you have to shoot them? You couldn't just shoot the because they're used to these old Westerns where that used to happen. So now, as a new chief, are you having any success kind of explaining the differences reality versus what people see on TV? Um, am I having any success? I, I would say so, um, especially with this um, era of reform. I've been talking a lot, doing a lot of these meetings to talk about what we're doing reform-wise. And um, people don't understand or, or don't know what we're doing. And so when you explain it to them, they're like, oh, that makes sense. Um, right now, we're currently, for the last week and a half, we've been looking for a 17-year-old missing juvenile, a 17-year-old uh, young male. And, um, you know, from all of these shows and just talking to people in the community, they're like, why can't you do this? You know, all the things that they've seen on TV and explaining what the reality is, you know, and, and it, it just takes their breath away, you know, takes the. Um, it's difficult. It's difficult. But explaining what we are doing, you know, that helps. And so I, we always talk about procedural justice, which is giving the community voice, answering questions and um I always believe in just taking the time to explain. And when you explain to people whether they like it or not, at least they understand if they choose to. Um, and and they, they have respect for that. So I always use the tenets of procedural justice. I always, I never turn down taking the time to explain things to people. And it's up to them whether they wanna, you know, understand it or not, but I'm always gonna take the time to explain. So that's important. And really quick, I'm going to go to Jason on this because I know that that's almost verbatim what you spoke about the last time we talked was that procedural justice piece, that explaining to people, that striving to always 
to make a system that works for everybody. You know, so just want to see if you could maybe touch upon that a little bit. The key, the key word and, and what Bisa highlighted was understanding. Um, you know, I, I recently participated in a community event. Um, and as a part of that event, um, they wanted, um, we had to write down a, a one word, um, like an inspirational word or, you know, what gave us hope. And, and then we had to talk about that one word. And my one word was understanding. Because for me, like that is the most critical element of what we're dealing with in this country right now when we talk about, you know, just relations, just relations. And whether we're talking about the police in the community, whether we're talking about race relations, whether we're talking about politics, it doesn't matter. But understanding is the most critical element in all of that. Too often times, you know, people are speaking from a place where they're either trying to prove that they're right. They're trying to prove that the other person is wrong or they're trying to change somebody's outlook or perspective on how they think about something. And all three of those are wrong. And so, man, if we can get more people focused on just coming from a place of understanding, the only thing I'm trying to achieve when I have a, a conversation with somebody, especially where if, if we have opposite um, a difference of opinion on the issue at hand is I'm just trying to get to a place of understanding. And if I can walk away from that conversation with, you know, feeling confident that, okay, man, I, I spoke my piece and I did everything in my power to try to give that person a level of understanding. And the same thing for me is I'm listening intently to try to gain a level of understanding from that individual, then that that's all any of us can can ask for. And, and that's that's where we can really see the needle start to move in how these relationships function. Because man, to say we're a divided country is is an understatement. Um, you know, and, and coming off the heels of an election, which that's one of the most you know divisive things that we have in our country. And to see how things played out on January 6, 2021, as a result of that, you know, the, the division that we're seeing in this country is is it, it's unhealthy. It's unhealthy. And, and so if, if we can focus on just getting and gaining a level of understanding from each other and that's 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 how we can really start to move the needle. Um, and, and the procedural justice that Visa mentioned, you know, the, the standards uh, and the concepts of procedural justice, just being fair with individuals and giving people a voice to where they feel as though, you know, what they're saying is has value and it's being received as having value. Doesn't mean that I'm going to agree with it. It doesn't mean that, you know, I'm not going to take the action that I need to take. But I can I can be respectful uh, for somebody like I would hope somebody would be for me if I was in their shoes, or if I was in a similar situation. And if we can get more of that going instead of, you know, people feeling as though that they have to win the conversation or win the argument or somebody feeling as though that they're better than the next person because of whatever reasons. Um, you know, that's where we're not getting anywhere with that. And, and we've shown time after time that that doesn't work. And that's why we keep seeing the same things happen in this country time after time. Why we keep seeing the same problems and some of the same issues is because we're we're coming we're coming at it from from the wrong perspective. And, and understanding is, is what is what needs to be at the forefront of what, what we're all working towards. And I and I agree with you on that, you know, as, as opposed to trying to win the conversation or trying to out shout one another. The main goal needs to be we must seek to understand. It's Listen. just that simple. It's just that simple. BC, you seem like you like you like you like that saying, please, if you want to jump in on that, please do. Yes. People are so polarized on opposite ends of the spectrum. I mean, 
you know, they're just so far left or so far right. And so they don't listen to understand it. A lot of people are listening to get their next point across. And if we just listen to understand the perspective and come a little bit closer, just like uh, Jason said, we'll be able to make some real change. But as long as people are so polarized left or right, I mean, we're not going to make progress. I agree. So Mark has a comment here that I think is interesting. He says, well said, Chief, and understanding would be awesome. So let me clarify. We're not, I don't think, and, and again, I don't want to put words in either one of the Chief's mouths here. We're not seeking for an understanding as in like a singular understanding. We're talking about the process of understanding one's perspective. All right. So that could be many different types of understanding. But um, just want to be clear, like we're not talking about a singular understand it because then that would be almost like trying to win a conversation if we have one understanding that means that somehow somebody imposed their will on somebody else and now we have one understanding there could be many different understandings because we're all different people we all have different experiences and we all have different wants and needs so i just felt the need to clarify that do you agree disagree with what i just said there uh, absolutely yeah absolutely um like i said understanding doesn't mean uh agreement um and and so you know it's it's not about getting to a place where all right man I'm I'm trying to convince the person to agree with me on, on my point you know I just I'm just trying to get them to understand where I'm coming from and and I hope to understand where they're coming from and if we have that level of understanding that'll help us navigate you know our challenges a little bit better it would so with that said this is a great time to uh, bring in a video like we like to do here this is going to talk about some of the why behind this gentleman's reason for becoming a police officer. So stand by and I'll cue this up. The fight for law enforcement has been a hot button topic for years. Tensions have long swirled around minority communities and policing. But Metro is on a mission to change the perception of what you see in your community. As part of our Black History Month celebration, 13 Action News reporter Alicia Patillo takes you inside the Valley's largest police department and shows you how this force is fighting to change the narrative. Alicia. Well, changing the narrative is a big challenge, but it's something Metro says is necessary. Representation matters in our community, and here's why. Becoming a Metro police officer was not a part of his plan. I grew up wanted to be a firefighter my whole life. Following in his father's steps, he did. But Officer Marquise Hines later found his purpose in the line of duty was beside the men and women in blue. For Hines, growing up on the northwest side of the valley, police did not mirror the communities they served. My pops always stressed the importance of uh, there's different rules for young black men in the streets. 95% of police officers are great guys here to do their job. But uh, at some point you might encounter one that doesn't know you do not, they might not know your culture. They might look at you as a threat just based off your uh, skin color, just your perception. The perception of police as an oppressive and predominantly white force has deeply affected minority communities for generations. For me growing up and just my uh, perception of things, I didn't see too many black officers on the streets. Um, with my, in my mind, uh, the Typical cop was a, a white guy. I didn't see too many women cops. I didn't see too many black or Hispanic cops. Uh, but now uh, in 2020, I know that our numbers as far as the number of black men that are police officers has grown. The Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department says representation matters and it shows. These numbers represent the diversity within the department today. 
Um, our numbers are rising as far as um, black men and women on the streets, which is great. That way we have representation on the streets. While there's still work to do, Hines says he's proud to work for a department who values diversity and be the example for generations to come. I have a eight-year-old, soon-to-be nine-year-old daughter, and at eight and nine years old, she's told me I want to be a police officer like you. That's why representation is important. Because Officer Hines is the president of the All right. So that's a good video that speaks a little bit to some of the challenges of diversifying a department and some of the whys behind why it's important to do so. So I'm going to go to Bisa first. Bisa, you want to speak to that video at all? Does that speak to kind of what's going on out in Richmond? Absolutely. Um, when I started rising through the ranks, um, it was because I wanted to make a difference internally within my department. Um, when I got to the rank of captain, I was the first female, a Latina and African-American female in the rank and the youngest ever to hold the position. And so there was a big article that was done. And after that article was done, anytime I went in the community, there would be so many people, hey, I read about you. And, um, you know, all these little girls that would go to community events and these little girls would want to take pictures with me. And I realized, you know, I, I didn't have that, you know, I didn't see that when I was coming up. I never saw a black female police officer. Um, you know, when I started, there was there were a couple here in my department, but um, I never really recognized any before then. And so I realized how important it was for these young girls in my community, young people in my community to see me in these leadership positions because when you see yourself when you can see yourself and especially with my story coming from the community you know having the challenges that i've had as a teenage mom and stuff and then seeing to where i am now i'm hoping that they see themselves in me and so representation absolutely matters i'm the only african-american uh, and latina female chief um, in charge of a municipality in the state of california right now um, there's two other black females that um, one runs the California Highway Patrol and the other one, I believe, is Riverside County in charge of a school district. Um, but that's, I mean, in 2021, we only have one in charge of a municipality. That's, we have to bring our numbers up because when it, that's how we're going to recruit. That's how we're going to change culture. That's how we're going to make the, the necessary changes that we need to make in this profession. Um, is by having other people that think a little bit differently than the thought pattern that's been here before. California is a big state. <laughs> to think that you're one of one is, I mean, you're one of many is, uh, that's, that, that's crazy. Um, Jason, what, what say you on this subject? And so, you know, my experience is very similar to, to what Bisa just shared. And, but I'll, I'll add something in addition to that from the, the opposite end of the spectrum. And so for me, you know, coming up in the agency that I started in, like I said, you know, when I got there, there were no minorities, uh, there were no blacks in, in command staff or anything like that. And so there were some community members, you know, that had been longstanding community members. So, you know, we would just call them, you know, some elders in the community that, you know, just year after year, it was, you know, some of the things that, that they always talked about because the community had changed. The community has shifted. It, it used to be, you know, a predominantly white population in, in the city. And then, you know, it shifted to where now, you know, it's probably 70 percent minority. And but they, they didn't see, you know, they didn't see a, a similar growth 
uh, and diversity inside the police department. And so I remember there was this one gentleman um, that, you know, he was very active in the community, you know, often ran for, you know, city council or the mayor or what have you. And he was one of the ones that were just very outspoken about wanting to see, you know, diversity inside the police department, you know, and things like that. And I remember it was after I had been promoted to captain. It was after I had been promoted to captain and I was out at a community event uh, on a Saturday morning. It was the uh, it was the 5K run. I remember like it was yesterday, and this is probably almost 10 years ago now. Um, his name is Mr. Moore, and I ran into Mr. Moore in the park that, that morning of the 5K run. And so this was the first time that he had seen me with my captain bars on. And so he didn't know that I had been promoted to cap. So this is before Facebook and where, you know, you post all the pictures of promotion. This is before all of that stuff. And and so when he saw it and, you know, just the look on his face of him looking at my uniform and just looking like, man, like this is what I've been, you know, yelling and screaming for. This is what, you know, man, I've, I've been, you know, just asking for. We've been saying, man, we need this. We need this. And now man, he's looking at a young brother that has accomplished those things that man, he has wanted to see for you know, 10, 20 years that he'd been living in that community. And so to see those things and, and to be a part of that, you know, is something that, you know, moments that, you know, that we cherish where we understand the importance uh, of clips like that of what you just showed and and just, you know, man, how how heavy that is for some communities um, when they they thought that they, you know, that they would never see anything, you know, like that before and what the possibilities are. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's just half the battle because with that, a lot of responsibility comes with that also. Um, and, and it's easy to let people down when you, when you don't say what they want to hear. <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, that, and so, so with the praise that comes with it at times, it is an enormous responsibility. Um, and that's where, you know, you, you, you really have to be you really have to be intentional, you know, about what you're trying to do and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, because, you know, the same things that the community was upset about, you know, from maybe my predecessor, you know, in, in one of those positions that I held, all right, I'm not going to do those same things. If you are well upset about it when it was being done by somebody else, then don't expect it to be done by me just because you think, okay, well, we got somebody in it that looks like me. And so, well, now maybe it's not that bad. Like, no, nah, we, we have to be careful, you know, with those things. And, and we have to make sure that we're being very responsible, you know, with the trust, you know, that, uh, that the community, you know, has in us. Um, and we have to make sure that we, you know, we maintain that and we uphold it. Um, but, you know, just just having those conversations, you know, with people out in the community, whether old or young. And and them being able to to see something that they've never seen before. One of the things that I participate here in Ferguson with is we have a program um, uh, of individuals getting out of prison, a mm -hmm. uh, reentry program. And so I go and I meet with them and talk with them. And, and oftentimes, you know, I may be wearing a suit and not a uniform. And so when I walk in, they don't know who I am. And we sit down and we have these conversations. And, you know, like I said, these are uh, individuals that have just got out of prison. Never thought that they'd be sitting in a room with a police chief and being able to have a conversation where they can relate to things and some of the same things. And so it's just that exposure uh, that that it you know provides us at times is something that, you know, we, we have to make sure we take advantage of. Now, all great points. And, you know, I'm just going to touch on something you said really quick. 
the uniform has a place and it also can be a hindrance sometimes like you just alluded to there sometimes i do think it's better to have a softer uniform or no uniform at all when you are trying to build trust and build what i call a relational credit score with your uh with your constituents like you you have to have that trust in place before an incident happens so you you will be able to have that avenue to have a dialogue if you wait until something happens and then you try to build trust that's the equivalent of closing the barn door after the horse is running down the street you know so that's not that's not a a, a viable uh way to go and one thing i do want to say about the video we watched it it's important that video is important for a lot of different reasons it's also important for us to have our coworkers see that so they can understand that it people there is a perception and mm -hmm. it's real because so many different people from all over the country are saying the same thing. You know, a million different people can't be telling the same lie. Like, so if, if a lot of people perceive it this way, that there are, um, that there are, that there are injustices or if people have had uh, incidents that have happened to them where they have been on the wrong end of the benefit of the doubt is how I'll phrase it. That is something that our coworkers, well, in my case, my coworkers, people that work under you, need to know because if that's part of that seeking to understand how we are viewed in our communities so i just wanted to say that bisa i could tell you one in you're emphatically nodding um <laughs> what do you think i'm just agreeing with you you're agreeing okay but that goes to the point um and and a question or a statement in the uh chat about diversity and i understand diversity and the reasons for diversity but don't you think that there's more important, deeper issues to resolve the injustice part of it? But if we don't address the diversity part of it, we're, I mean, it's gonna be hard to address the injustice part of it. We have to get more representation into our departments because everybody comes with a different experience and perspective. And to share those with each other is, is learning. It, it's helped with the learning process, the growth, the cultural understanding. And so, um, I, like I said earlier, I can hire a bunch of diverse officers all day long, but you know, if I don't change the culture within, and, and part of that changing the culture is to have people that have the perspectives that they can share, and so that everybody within the department has a better understanding of you know people in, in different backgrounds. All right, Bisa. Well, I got you. I'm keeping you on the hot seat. All right, Kevin has a question here that I think is right up your alley, um, considering you are, I saw your blinker on, you turned down the road, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep you on that road right now. I understand diversity in the reasons for diversity, but don't you think it's more important to solve deeper issues of injustice? It feels like a Band-Aid to a deeper problem. Right, and that's- the conversation for a reason, so go ahead, Deepa. Well, that's the road I was going down is that, yes, diversity is important and it's not just a Band-Aid. Um, like I said, we're bringing in different perspectives that we can learn from each other. Um, you know, it's there. there's not a one size fits all solution to the injustice. I mean, the, the system as a whole is broken and we can't individually change the system, but we can make changes within our own departments to address some of these uh, injustices. That's through policy, that's through, you know, um, our, our training, in-house training, and putting in policies and procedures within our own departments that are gonna change some of those injustices and that will hopefully carry on to other departments. 
So that's where I was going with my first answer. Out, outstanding. I want to bounce to Jason because I know he wants in. In about 90 seconds or less, Jason, can you address this? What's your thought process? Yeah, so I'm going to come from a little bit different perspective on this, you know, talking about the injustice piece. And I think our biggest issue is not so much what the injustice is. And so when we when I'm when I'm speaking about this, you know, a lot of things happen and and we label it injustice. But when it gets to the court system, we see nothing happens with it or it's ruled justified or, or whatever we want to call it. Um, and, and so what we have to get to and as police leaders, what we really have to focus on is not what is legally right, but what is morally right. And, and that's where that's where your policies and procedures really come in, come into play, because just because you legally can do something doesn't mean that it's the right thing for you to do or the best thing for you to do. And that's that's what we have to change. And that's one of. For me, that, that's been one of the challenges for me in a profession is too many times, you know, I see fellow colleagues or I hear fellow colleagues in the profession, you know, trying to excuse something away or trying to justify something just because you can find a lane that it fits into to, to say, oh, well, because of this, you know, the officer was right in doing that where all right, man, if that was your family member that was just running, running away, running down the street and get gunned down in their back, would you think the same way? And we, we have to stop looking at it, you know, in that vacuum of, of OK, if, if a police officer can do no wrong. Like, man, come on, we all know that that's a load of crap. Um, and, and so that's where, you know, having people in the position. So getting back to where Bisa was coming from on the front end, talking about the criticalness of the diversity piece. All right, man, having more people, you know, in in these positions and having a seat at the table that can lend their voice to these things. And, and as a profession, man, we stop signing off and co-signing on some of this nonsense that we've seen happen year after year. Some of these crazy incidents that we've seen happen across the country where people think it's funny to, to make a joke about some of this mess or try to justify some of this nonsense. Now, that's where the diversity really has its place. Um, is when you have people that can take the, the next step and, okay, but we know what the courts say. We know the Supreme Court has ruled on this and says this and that, and, and things are to be viewed a certain kind of way. But I could also put some things into my organization to restrict that a little bit. And, all right, yeah, the courts say that you can ask anybody, you know, where they're coming from, or you can ask anybody if you can search their car. But let me put a policy in place that says, no, if you want to ask somebody to search their car, you got to be able to explain to me why you want to do that. And that's that's how we get to the injustice piece and really start to root, you know, root some of those things out to where we're seeing less of those incidents happen. And, and, and those are all fantastic points. Um, I, when I spoke to um, you, Bisa, before we ever got on, you know, a couple of days ago, we talked about how things kind of flow from the west towards the east. In police work. I don't know if you remember us talking about that a little bit, but one thing I will say that we do in the East that seems to be something that's big up in the Northeast is when we teach defensive tactics, that's one of the things that I do um, outside of just my sergeant duties is I'm a use of force defensive tactics instructor. We do teach that the use of force continuum is not an I get to chart. You punch me. Now I get to hit you with a baton. You push me. Now I get to tase you. We don't teach that here. So that so we're already kind of doing that 
up here in Massachusetts and also when I was in New Hampshire in that you have to, you know, like be like if I punch you, Jason, you know, like I am, I mean, you're a big guy, but I'm probably a little bigger than you are. If I punch you, yes, you might need to tase me or hit me with a baton. But if my mother were to punch you, sorry, Ma, but if my mother were to punch you, you could probably just maybe corral her a little bit and tell her that she needs to stop and you'd be able to do that. And that's what it means is just because somebody does something that according to the use of force continuum says you can use a level of force here, you need to apply a little bit of emotional intelligence and realize that maybe you can solve it a, a different way that's less, um, that's more humane, so to speak. Absolutely, Dean. And, and you see a couple of years ago, um, it was it was a collaborative effort, ICP, um, uh, the Sheriff's Association, um, just all the associations came together and they put out an updated use of force policy um, and position paper. And they took the force continuum out. They took it out like a lot of if you look at a lot of policies and when we talk about 21st century policing, a lot of places they've taken the force continuum out for those reasons that you just explained, highlighted into where man, we just we go Graham B. Connor, man, and we talk about the reasonableness and what is reasonable. And so what you just explained comes down to reasonable. Like, all right, if you hit me, yes, you're going to catch these hands, Dean. Yeah. <laughs> then, you know, I may, you know, I may be able to overpower her, you know, a little bit with the restraint or something. And it's what's reasonable for what's in front of me at this present moment. Um, and that's, you know, that's that's what we got to get to. Yeah. All right. We talked about that. Go ahead. You want to jump, you want to jump in about 60 seconds and I want to get to uh, something real quick. Go ahead. Or Dean, we did talk about how uh, the West Coast is kind of the think tank and then things move. We've actually gotten away from the use of force continuum many years ago. Um, and we, for uses of force, it's only the force necessary to overcome the resistance. And, and, that, and that's a good way to put it. There's no limits on what that might be. It's just you have to be able to articulate why you needed to do it. No more, no less. Absolutely. Fair enough. All right. So let's talk about something positive. We're down to the last few minutes. So I'm going to go to Bisa first, and then we're going to end up with, uh, with, with Jason. Talk to me about where you want to go. All right. We've talked so much about our past. We've talked about so much about our present. Tell me a little bit about when you're sitting and your head's on that pillow and you have that pie in the sky vision of where you want to be. Where is that for Richmond PD, Bisa? So there's a lot of work to do, um, but we've done a lot of work and, and we have a great relationship with our community, but it can be so much better. Um, we really need to integrate more again with our community and get back to the basics. Law enforcement needs to get back to the basics. I know a lot of the reform efforts talks about the mental health piece of it and the drug addiction and the homelessness issues. And those are all issues that we shouldn't, as law enforcement officers, should be dealing with. That should be social service issues and we're only dealing with it if it becomes a criminal issue. And, and a lot of times, even that could be mitigated into, you know, mental health or, or um, drug addiction stuff. Um, I really want to get back to the basics. Um, I want to, again, be one with the community where we're working together in partnership to solve the issues of the community. And we're only being called upon when it's an absolute last resort, not for everything that's going on. And I see a pathway there. I think that we can get there. Um, and I don't even see it being long off. Um, it's just gonna take time and effort to
to get there. So I, I, I see positive things happen. All right. Well said, Jason, round us up, bring us home. I want you to dream with me. Heads on the pillow. What's the vision of Ferguson PD? To be a model of what the possibilities are. Um, you know, everybody, everybody in law enforcement knows Ferguson. You know, they know, you know, what happened here. And, and for me, you know, what, you know, what uh, aim of mine is, is for us to be known for more than that. And so I mean, we're, we're known for, you know, that, that, that critical point in, in time, but I mean, how, how did we grow from that? You know, man, how did we prosper from that? You know, what were, you know, what were the things, the great things that were birthed out of that? And that's, that's what I want us to, to get to. That's what, you know, I want us for people to, to see, you know, in this country, you know, what can be. Um, and so when you hear, you know, the name Ferguson, you know, you're not just thinking about what happened in 2014. You know, that may be where you thought where you start off. But then you start thinking about like, oh, man, you know, they had this happen back in 2014. But all right, it's 2021, it's 2022. Like, look where look where they're at now. Like, look what they've been able to accomplish since then. Um, and that, you know, for me, you know, that that's what it is. That's what the motivating factor is, is if we could be, you know, that that model, that glimmer of hope that man, we could come through what this community came through. And we can get to a point where I mean, we have something positive to show the world. We have something you know, good that, you know, you can go through a tragedy like that and you can come out on the other end of it, you know, better than you were. Um, and so for, for me, that's that's what the dream is, man, is is for us to be as known, uh, you know, globally as we are for what happened here in 2014, for the work that we've done and the work that we continue to do and what we're trying to build here uh, in this community is, is what my aim is, man. You both just killed that answer. So I'm not even going to try to talk because I'm going to leave it on that high note. I just want to thank you both for taking the time out to talk to us, to talk to people across the country that want to see leadership. They want to see hope. People want to learn. Um, they want to, they want to know that there's people out there that are seeking to understand and that, and that want to be part, be partners with the community. And both you, Chief French, Chief Armstrong, you both epitomize that. So thank you so much for being you. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with everybody. And, um, this has just been an, an amazing episode, and I, I just can't thank you enough. It's been great. Thank you both for doing this. Thank you for having me. Not a problem, man. My pleasure. Anybody in the St. Louis area is looking for a job, Ferguson Police Department is hiring. You can email me at jarmstrong at fergusoncity.com for more details. All right. Also hiring, even if you're not in the Richmond area, come on over to California. It's sunny out here, 70 degrees. So here's what I'll do for both of you. If you want to send me a link, if you have like a hiring link or something like that, that, that you can make um, shareable on Facebook and in LinkedIn, LinkedIn, I will share it through my Supply the Y um, platforms. Fair enough? Good. Yes, sir. All right. So get those links to me and we'll get them out there. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us tonight. Thanks again for, for tuning in and taking times away from your family. Here we are. You can catch us on, on Facebook, LinkedIn, we're on Instagram. We're on all your favorite podcast channels. Tune in to Supply the Why for more great conversations. So everybody, have a great night. Thanks for tuning in.